Good evening. I'm Marcus Leader, and I would like to invite you on a journey of discovery as I pull back the veil and give you a glimpse of the multiverse through the eyes of a Toltec shaman. So sit back, relax, turn up the volume, and turn down the lights. You're now listening to The Shaman's Brew. This is Marcus Leder with The Shaman's Brew, and I have Tracy Savage with me in this special edition of uh, The Shaman's Brew and Savage Science. Welcome to the show, Tracy. Hi, Marcus. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. <laughs> I'd like, I'd like to, to thank you, everybody, for uh, tuning in to the special broadcast with uh, Tracy Savage and myself as we combine our shows, uh, The Shaman's Brew and Savage Science, in this uh, two-hour special interview with the incredible and lovely Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Uh, we're going to be talking about one of my favorite subjects, vampires. Now, since our two shows are an hour each, we'll be playing the first part of this interview on my show, and the second half of the interview will be on uh, Tracy's uh, show, Savage Science, which follows right after my show at 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We're going to bring Rosemary on the show in just a minute, but before we get started, let me tell you a little bit about our guest tonight. Unless you are new to the paranormal or have been living in a cave in outer Mongolia, you're probably familiar with Rosemary and her work, but, uh, but just in case, Rosemary Ellen Guiley is a leading expert on the paranormal and supernatural. She conducts original field investigations of haunted and mysterious sites. She has written more than 40 books, including nine encyclopedias, and hundreds of articles in print on a wide range of paranormal, spiritual, and mystic topics, and possesses an exceptional knowledge in the field. She has approximately one million copies in print. Her encyclopedias on ghosts and spirits, angels, vampires and werewolves, magic and alchemy, witchcraft, demons, dreams, mystical and paranormal experience, and saints are considered essential sources for authors, researchers, film and documentary producers, and paranormal investigators. Her work has been translated into 14 languages and has been selected by major book clubs around the world. She appears in television programs, documentaries, and docudramas with paranormal themes and makes numerous media and lecture appearances, including colleges and universities. Rosemary is also a frequent guest on Coast to Coast AM with George Norrie. Uh, he's the leading nighttime syndicated talk show. And uh, she's also co-authored a book with George on spirit communication called Talking to the Dead, published by Tor Books. In particular, she researches interdimensional entity contact experiences involving entities such as shadow people, aliens, mysterious beings and creatures, Angels, fairies, jinn, and demons. She also researches documentation of interdimensional portals using innovative photography and real-time spirit communication devices. Rosemary has co-authored books on the jinn and interdimensional portals with Philip J. Imbrogno. And with that, I'd like to welcome Rosemary Ellen Guiley to the show. Hello, Rosemary. 
Hi, Marcus and Tracy. Thank you for such a wonderful introduction. Oh, it's, mm-hmm. it's our pleasure. It it's, uh, it, it's, it's always very interesting speaking with you and uh, discussing these topics. So it's, it's, it's really an honor having you on the show. Well, thank Absolutely. you. And, and I'm just delighted to talk about vampires because of all the topics that I've researched over the years. They are one of my favorite. I'm often asked to pick a favorite. And I can't single anything, any one thing out as the always favorite, but vampires are right up there. They have a fascinating folklore. We uh, are now looking at uh, living vampire subcultures with mythology in the making. The vampire keeps reinventing itself, and uh, no other entity in our supernatural lore is as versatile, as pervasive, and as fascinating as the vampire. Yeah, it's it's always been one of my favorite topics too. I think a lot of it is from you know my childhood. I grew up with uh, the horror movies, and uh, I'm even old enough to have watched uh, the original Dark Shadows. You know, it's it's the first uh, soap opera you know, I ever encountered. But uh, you know, I got hooked on that. But uh, it's it's something that's always fascinated me, and and it seems to be you know spreading worldwide too. I don't know what the exact allure of the the vampire. You know, I know with a lot of people, it's it's um, I can especially with the movies these days, it's it's a sensual type of creature. It's mysterious, uh, very sophisticated, and and I, you know, I don't know exactly if if other people are seeing the same type of thing in uh, vampires. Or I didn't know what you thought about that, Rosemary. You know, why is it so popular? Well, since we've had the twilight explosion and the, um, the the whole new phenomenon of young adult vampires, and, you know, we've got, um, not in addition to, to Twilight, the Vampire Diaries, Vampire Academy, the Blue Bloods, and similar things. So Twilight is definitely the big international phenomenon. I've been getting mail from all over the world from people. And you know where a lot of it comes from? And these are from people who think that these sorts of vampires are the real deal, and they want to go out and meet these vampires. A lot of it comes from India, Pakistan, and Turkey. Oh, really? Huh? That's that's uh, that's interesting. They these people yeah. actually believe these these stories that they exist, like they are portrayed in the movies. There's certainly a lot of curiosity about vampires, and. Most of the email that I get internationally like that uh, ask me, are these vampires real, and if so, where can I meet them? Or they just start out assuming that they're real, that they just say they, they want to meet vampires uh, like the Twilight vampires. Uh, and um, it's well, these, are, these are very repressive societies, so it would make sense that they're that they're looking for something that's outside of of their mindset, don't you think? Well, this um, this latest iteration of the vampire that's taken the young adult market by storm um, has has turned the vampire literally into a superhero, very uh, kind of gallant superhero. Uh, where the good van there are bad vampires, of course, that go around doing nasty things, but the good vampires are uh, really gallant. Uh, and quite noble and pure of intent. They, they use their vampiric superpowers for good, not for evil. 
And that's something that our ancestors, especially from Eastern Europe, never would have recognized. Today's fictional vampire would be totally unrecognizable as a vampire to people even a few hundred years ago. It was a loathsome, loathsome thing that uh, didn't make it to the afterlife, a human spirit that became contaminated, unholy, and was able to return from the grave to do terrible things to the living without exception. Now, how did these uh, these ancient stories, the lore of the vampire, uh, especially in, in other countries, how did that all come about? Uh, you know, for example, who was the first vampire, or is there someone identified as the, the very first vampire? We, we certainly have lore go back, going back to ancient times, and a lot of it uh, came out of the Mediterranean. The vampire cult has uh, some ancient roots in um, Greece and Italy, for example. Uh, a lot of what we know about the vampire comes from very old pagan cults in Eastern Europe. Humanity has always had a, a fear of death and a fear of the grave, so to speak. We wonder what happens to the soul uh, after death, and every society has beliefs about an afterlife and the transit of, of a soul into the afterlife. Uh, and with that transition from life uh, to beyond life and into death, there's this whole area uh, of uncertainty. What happens to someone who doesn't quite make it? And uh, we find in every culture, going back to ancient times, a lot of uh, about what happens to these demonic uh, sorts of entities. Hmm. That's um, so. Yeah, that, that, wait. Well, they, they go become ahead. demonic. I, I should explain that that uh, the perception is that the, the, the soul or the spirit can become contaminated by demons or sort of demonic-like in behavior, uh, okay. uh, uh, in, caught in, in this nether world between life and death. And in some beliefs, this period is temporary, and in others, it lasts until human beings put an end to it. Uh, and that's the case we find with Eastern Europe, European vampire that uh, when this soul was was caught between life and and the afterlife, uh, it was often up to the living to identify the corpse that was sustaining this unnatural state of existence and uh, put an end to it by destroying that vehicle, the body itself. So there were beings that were vampiric, but not necessarily demonic. As demons are are more of a a modern projection of how we we view the behavior, um, but they there was a lot of cultures that had vampiric creatures that they didn't necessarily have a belief in demons per se the way that we we define them today. Uh, well, is this what the, you're saying? Um, uh, you could consider demons to be very old and universal. Uh, that is, various classes of interfering spirits, usually on the negative side. And our view, the Christian view of, of demons, uh, the predominant modern Western view of demons is something I call the satanic demon. It's a very narrow slice of the demonic universe. We consider demons to be fallen angels work under uh, an entity named Satan who try and subvert the soul in, into damnation. 
But outside of Christianity and going back to ancient times, demons covered quite a, a wider territory. They, they were uh, varying classes of mild to, to very malevolent uh, entities who could interfere in the ability of human beings to pursue a prosperous life uh, by causing uh, disaster, disease, misfortune, uh, a ruination of your livelihood, uh, and, and those sorts of things. Uh, those would be demons. Uh, and every mythology has vampiric demons. Now, there are different kinds of vampires. We have um, the, the view of the Eastern European vampire cults that most vampires are the returning human dead that become uh, subverted and twisted in, in their uh, transit to the afterlife and become contaminated as a result of that. And in some beliefs, literally become taken over by demons. Um, there are many beliefs about vampires. Another kind of, of vampire is a non-human entity that would be classed as a demon. That is, a spirit who preys upon uh, living things, human and animal, uh, to subsist on the blood or the life force in order to sustain itself. And in the case of, of some South American vampires, they take the body fat. Um, uh, these are um, beliefs of people who live high in the Andes where body fat is very important to survival. And so their vampiric demons, uh, take they're not interested in the blood, they take the body fat. And then we have, uh, finally, another class of vampires that you would call living vampires. And in various folklore traditions, these are people that would be called witches or sorcerers uh, in some cultures, that is, people who from birth uh, have uh, supernatural power uh, and can use it in um, malevolent ways if they so choose. So all of these things sort of form this this big, huge mix of uh, what vampires are. And, and there are many beliefs that uh, describe vampires and, and uh, without agreement from one culture to another in terms of what vampires precisely are. But basically, we can say it's some sort of spirit that um, depletes living things in order to sustain itself. Now, b before we, we move on, uh, you mentioned the, the fat vampires, and that, that kind of intrigues me. I wanted to uh, uh, just clarify that a little bit. Is, is this a, a myth uh, or lore of that area, or are there actual modern-day attacks on uh, on people's fat and you know are they uh, the type of attack where the, the person is killed as a result of it or you know I, I this this is something new I haven't run into fat vampires before fat vampires. yeah it might be a new diet craze of the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> take mine please yeah everybody needs a fat exactly. vampire yeah. we'll be all standing in line it's a new form of liposuction <laughs> The, um, well, the anthropological literature uh, from researchers who go into remote areas to, to study lifestyles and, and mythologies and folklore beliefs, uh, these are contemporary beliefs in very rural areas that these sorts of entities can still prey upon people. And like our Eastern European ancestors, people who would have, for example, unexpected deaths or uh, die of hypothermia or wasting disease um, might be considered to be under a vampire attack, taking okay. uh, the body's nutrients 
um, in, in, in very dangerous ways. And interestingly, the folklore has evolved into modern times. Now, in earlier beliefs, um, people thought that the vampires took the, the fat, and what they didn't use themselves, what they had leftover fat, they sold it off. <laughs> I guess it's <laughs> underground fat market. Yeah. Uh, and, and there were these prevalent beliefs that the fat was used to make church bells. And I don't know how you make church bells with body fat. but a little weird. One of those peculiar <laughs> beliefs. But in today's times, the beliefs are that the fat is used to pay off national debt uh, and ah. airplane, airplane fuel. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we have very wow. enterprising fat vampires, I guess, in an underground. I guess so, they're... Entrepreneuric vampires. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this was in what area? You said it was in South America? South America, uh, mostly in Peru, in the Andes Mountains. And okay. there are a number of vampires. They have different names, uh, but they all basically do the same thing. They steal the body fat. Because there, there are other... Uh, we're, uh, when we think of vampires, we think of like a, a human form. And then they have, uh, you know, animals that are associated with uh, the shape-shifting sort of idea. Um, but they, they do have, in many cultures, African, Asian, and South American uh, scattered up and down, you know, the, the hemisphere, um, different animals that would, would take uh, life forces like you were talking about, but not necessarily just the blood. I mean, they had uh, uh, spirits that would... Um, that were the well, they were the spirits of uh, people that died in childbirth, and then they would come back uh, and steal children, and they would enter into uh, liaisons with the living, and then they would drive them crazy, and that was in the Aztec uh, mythology. And they then there's also the Mapuche in southern Chile, and they actually had a blood sucking snake. So it's in 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 Africa, they had an awful lot of animal human. Uh, combinations as well. So um, a lot of times it seemed like they would take from uh, nature and then they would they would anthropomorphize these ideas onto these animals and then create this mythological being that is vampiric, but I guess now we're just attaching the, the label of vampire onto them. And then, of course, you're saying that if they're fat vampires, it's whatever's in, endemic to that area as being a life force idea. Am I, am I following this right? Yeah, we find uh, different... Um Sort of iterations of the vampire in various cultures, depending upon what might be most threatening to a human being's ability to survive and thrive. And okay. some of these vampires are hybrids. You know, they're animal-human hybrids, uh, or they're shapeshifters. Some of the ones that are non-human have grotesque, demonic uh, appearances that are described. A fat vampire, for example, from the Andes is usually de described as a mysterious man wearing a long trench coat. It, it's kind of evoking the idea of stranger, you know, the mysterious stranger who comes in. Um, and as you said, there are, there are other vampires that, that take more animalistic forms. Um, now, in Eastern Europe, uh, and I, you know, so many of our contemporary beliefs about vampires out of European beliefs and also from the Mediterranean, uh, the vampire 
could uh, could take your blood, your energy, uh, your money, uh, could ruin your crops, kill your livestock. Uh, I even came across stories of uh, bee vampires who, who uh, if you were a beekeeper, the vampires would come in and, and uh, render the bees incapable of making honey, which would be your livelihood. If you were a baker, they would take the uh, yeast and leavening out of your bread so that it would be tasteless and worthless. So uh, this pervasive idea that we can be at the mercy of something that can destroy our ability to live uh, and thrive, you know, survive and thrive, I guess would be the, the way to put it. Uh, it seems to be pervasive to human beings since ancient times. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not just blood and energy. They, uh, they pretty much take anything that we have of value. Exactly. Right. Whatever is of, of value to us. And I, I ran across stories about vampires taking the beauty off your face. Oh, for, for useful beauty. Ah. Um, yes. And so um, far more than blood. And, of course, it's the blood-drinking vampire that we became so fascinated with in, in the West, and that, uh, that's the, uh, the monster who entered our popular culture. Mm. Yeah, there's a, lot, there's a lot there with the uh, imagery, too, uh, blood. And uh, now we have the sexy vampire, so that's probably p- a lot of the draw also. How did that become mixed in, that there's always an undertone of, of sensuality and sexuality with these characters? And I, I find that in a lot of the last couple hundred years anyways, um, it has really turned into this, uh, this sort of um, presence and, of course, you know, media and Hollywood just ran with it. But going back into those times, there was – what? where did it turn from something that's got this proboscis sucking sort of animalistic thing into a more sophisticated idea? When did that transfer into our psyches, I mean, collectively? Because this is not – it sort of seems like it's a phenomena that sort of uh, – uh, uh, evolved all sort of at the same time globally, you know, with all of its own little characteristics in whatever pocket you're talking about. Did, was there a time that it seemed that that particular idea, it came in the night when you're vulnerable? Is that is that where it, psychologically you think it played into it? Or, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I, I think we can look to the early 18th century as the point of origin of this transmutation uh, from the horrific into the glamorous. Uh, And that's when Western Europe started finding out about the vampire cult in Eastern Europe. Uh, And and it was originally this this sort of horrific thing that these ignorant peasants did. You know, they went around digging up rotting corpses looking for certain signs of this entity called the vampire uh, and uh, as a way of explaining bad things that were happening to people, especially in terms of their livelihood and their health and even their lives, uh, and then mutilating them and burning them. It was, it was just a very bizarre, horrific practice. Well, when reports of this started filtering out, uh, mostly from about the 1740s, there were accounts of vampires before that, but it seemed that the time was right. Uh, in, in terms of 
the ability of people to to be fascinated by the vampire and and for it to become immediately incorporated into the performing arts. And Europeans were very fast to jump on that, followed by the English, to put this this horrific character into their plays, their music, comedy, short stories, poems. Uh, And the vampire was a wonderful stage device because it just mesmerized audiences. It was so exotic, so dangerous. Uh, And uh, then, of course, we have uh, Bram Stoker, who... um, really made a, a big turning point in the vampire and literature, 1897, with his novel Dracula, where um, Dracula enters very proper society in England. England is a symbol for the civilized world. Uh, it was still empire then and represented the height of um, intellect, manners, arts, uh, military might, the greatest thing in the civilized world and this foreign uh, threat uh, in terms of the vampire uh, threatens the stability of that world. And in order to do that, Dracula had to infiltrate himself into that society uh, in very quiet ways. So the vampire became this um, this image of someone who could pass in high society uh, the, the mysterious European nobleman who was properly dressed, who had all the right manners, but had this horrible secret to him. And that image was further reinforced when the novel was translated onto the stage and from the stage then into the film. And the rest, I think, we can say is history in terms of, of how the vampire has become increasingly glamorous uh, as other artists and, and writers and dramatists have reinterpreted this image. Would you say that it was uh, primarily masculine? In, I mean, we think of Dracula now, automatically you think of a male. But in the old lore, a lot, most of them seem to be feminine. And then it sort of like became this renaissance idea. It seems like the vampire appears wherever there's a, a well, it goes through an evolution into this, um, this more uh, freeing, I guess. I don't even, I don't even know what word I'm looking for. Like a, like it, it, it frees them from their uh, restrictions in society. So it sort of represents a little bit of a, of a, of a, change into a more progressive idea and then uh, the societies following that it's sort of as a representative I guess of, of them trying to break out of the way that they were you said that the, the Europeans or the, the English anyway the British were very uh, you know they, they were very status quo and they were very organized and then they had this thing that was becoming so pervasive with their media which of course represents their their subconscious desire to break free of, of, of all that and be unrestrained because I mean who, who could actually restrain a vampire it's un, unrelenting lust and passion and you know following that those instincts where in their society they weren't allowed to have those things in Victorian era I mean they were very you know uh, stiff upper lip and high collars and all of that but yet in their media and their stage and their, their writings once Bram Stoker hit I mean it was just like the craze like you said 
what would account for them to glam on to this particular ideology so heavily and so I mean it, it like you said it's the most popular creature in so many different societies and now it's happening over in the Middle East what accounts for that when there's there's a society that has a particular pervasive um, um, squishing down of natural uh, instincts do you think that it's a representative of the renaissance of people following their own desires like repressive uh, morals, mores, and, and ethics? Well, the, um, the literary vampire certainly has become symbolic of a, a lot of different kinds of expressions, of trends in society. Uh, the, the pagans from Europe and other parts of the world who dealt with the vampire threat uh, as part of their daily life uh, surely did not see them that way. They were a threat to um, to the ability to, to live, and vampires could equally be male or female. It really didn't matter. They were a returning horror from the grave, and it, it really didn't have um, much at all to do with uh, people's place in society. But when the vampire entered uh, our uh, literary streams and our performing art, it became a symbol and a metaphor for all sorts of things. And we see a number of streams of development in, in different directions. Now, uh, before Dracula, uh, one of the most dominant literary vampires was uh, Sheridan Le Fanu's Carmilla, uh, which he wrote in 1872 uh, that preceded Stoker by about 25 years. And it was about a female vampire who preyed uh, upon women and men alike. And there are uh, even interpretations of some lesbian overtones in the story. Uh, for Stoker, the vampire became uh, a wonderful tool uh, of the ability to upset um, high society of order, you know, this, this chaos that could come in, infiltrate uh, the order of established things, of upper-class things. And the, um, the blood drinking and the attacks on, on the women victims certainly had sexual overtones that uh, were not uh, capable of being expressed in more explicit ways, as you pointed out, Tracy, in Victorian England. And those sorts of themes have followed our literature and performing arts on down through the decades, where, um, for example, in, uh, in, in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, when Hammer Films uh, in England was at its peak uh, doing blood and guts horror movies, uh, there were ample quantities of uh, heaving bosoms along with the vampire attacks. It was always, you know... <laughs> Uh, Christopher Lee's <laughs> red cape uh, after women. He didn't seem to attack men so much, but he sure liked oh, ladies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've got them all. <laughs> so I do. Empire, then, you know, the, the literary critics have uh, examined this literary vampire from so many angles of um, feminism, uh, repressed sexuality, uh, the upset of, of order, uh, ideas about death. Uh, and, and now we have this, this gallant vampire, this increasingly gallant vampire. You know, we, we went into the 
the sexy vampire in paranormal romance, and Anne Rice, you know, certainly uh, refined that image quite a bit, the wealthy, sexy, um, but still dangerous vampire. And, and now we've got uh, vampires who just seem to be kind of Mr. Nice Guys. Uh, and uh, this, this especially appeals to, to the young adult market. Um, one interesting thing that I've noticed about how the, um, the male vampires approach their, their female heroines, and that's usually the case, even though in some, many of these stories they're female vampires as, as well as male, but the dominant couple is uh, a mortal woman and uh, a vampire male. And she is the one who is in control of the sexuality. Uh, he has her up on a pedestal. He thinks uh, that you know she's above every other woman on the planet. He will do her no wrong, and he will never... Uh, push himself on her because he he doesn't want to hurt her in any way. So she's the one who uh, finally falls irrevocably in love with him and insists on consummating the relationship. And we see that trend repeated, not in every case, but it, it seems to be a dominant appeal in this new young adult vampire. Yeah, and I think that quality yeah, that is being portrayed by the, the new vampires is something that a lot of the women especially you know are, are falling for you know the uh, not just the sophistication but the devotion you know he, you know the vampire would die you know to protect her that type of thing it's and kind of a combination of james dean and sir galahad a <laughs> <laughs> hero worship thing Mm-hmm. Well, but he's you know, still these... an outsider. He's still dangerous. He's still yeah. foreign, the other, yep. the outsider. But he's chivalric on yeah. top of it when he's just... fixated on a on a female. Just can't well, resist a partic- him. A particular female, because the other females are always expendable. It's sort of that um, yeah. virgin whore idea again. I know I shouldn't have probably said that, but you know, it's a family show. <laughs> but we are talking about this. <laughs> But that's the same idea. Remember, he has like a stable where they've got all these, you know, myriad of of beautiful, sexy women. And they're sort of not ever the number one wife kind of idea, the the harem idea, I guess you could say. But then there's that one captivating, I guess uh, Stoker did a great job with the Mina character. And that's sort of representative of a lot of women's psyches that she'll be the one that can tame the beast, you know, at the same time mixing it with the hero worship maybe. Right. Hmm. right. We have a lot yeah. of psychological yeah. trappings. <laughs> so it's, it's a curious trend here and uh, on one hand it seems uh, like it's destroying the vampire because um, th- this new vampire is so unvampire-like. How can you even call it a vampire? It just has fangs, and some of them drink blood. The good guys don't drink human blood. Uh, and it's yet it's a trend that we've seen happening uh, for some time. I mean, Marcus, you mentioned dark shadows, yeah. and Barnabas Collins, you know, started out in that being very dark and threatening and mm-hmm. and evil and by the time the the series was ended he was Mr. Good Guy. Yeah. Uh, and was looking, you know, he had the 
um, Julia, you know, the doctor who was mm-hmm. uh, trying to find the cure for him. But he started helping people. Uh, so it's, it's a trend that's been in the works. And, and now I find that young people who are totally unfamiliar with the earlier movies, the Hammer films, uh, some of them aren't even familiar with the Vampire Lestat. Uh, they have no concept of, of what the early cinematic and, and literary vampires were, uh, let alone the, the folklore. Their whole definition of vampires is coming from this uh, contemporary film and fiction right now. Yeah, it, it's, al- it, it's almost like um, the modern-day authors and uh, movie producers are rewriting, you know, creating a new uh, myth or lore you know, for the future. It, you know, it it's seems like, to be the case, and uh, hard to know where, where it's going to go. Uh, I mean, even Buffy uh, managed <laughs> I was just thinking of her. The, the, the well, they were the ugly there. Vampires. <laughs> well, they were hor- horrific in the Buffy series. I mean, they kind of kept true to the stereotype, or I guess the image that we had. And, and you wanted the vampire slayer to slay the vampire and then she falls in love with angel and you're and you're thinking oh no i have to like one of them again you know and he is pretty cool and he got his own show even you know but yeah now they just sparkle and that's it yeah yeah I, I find it interesting that the the creator of twilight uh had never read a vampire book or seen a vampire movie before she she wrote about her vampires, wow. skin sparkled, and she yes. she had a dream in which um, there were entities called vampires, and their skin glittered, and and so she wrote a short story, which eventually be, uh, worked its way into the Twilight uh, novels. But here's someone who has no underpinnings in the vampire cult or the vampire uh, fictional culture at all, who's created an entirely new vampire. Now, just out of curiosity, uh, in any of your research, or I know you've traveled around the world and uh, doing a lot of this research, have you ever encountered any stories of sparkling vampires? I certainly have not. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> just, I had to... just wondering. Yes, I heard you laughing. <laughs> uh, as, yeah. as yet, I have not. Um... Okay. Well, <laughs> there may be. But uh, now, do you know, as a result of all this literature and and the movies, do you do you think that's what's responsible for um, the creation and evolution of uh, today's vampire, the living vampire subculture, or was that around before that really became popular, just underground? I think a lot of the uh, vampire subculture was influenced heavily by Anne Rice and also role-playing, you know, the um, role-playing games like Masquerade. But probably Anne Rice uh, is the biggest influence on that. Uh, She really glamorized vampires and uh, fostered the idea of of the long clans and families and uh, reinforced the idea of aristocracy and nobility um, much more than fiction before that and and film even, where most of the Dracula films, uh, Dracula's kind of a loner, you know, he's not really part of a, a big underground network of, of vampires. And Anne Rice really built that up. 
Um, and it inspired a lot of people. And um, uh, I think for a time, life imitated art. Uh, and now it's kind of taken a hold on its own. It's, it's uh, self-creating. Cre- um, the people who are considering themselves vampires, and a good number of them are, would be called more energy vampires, There aren't that many people who have a real taste for blood, and and um, it has its has its health hazards, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, they've created their own communities with their own literature, their own mythology, their own searching for their their roots as as what they feel their place in the cosmos is, um, what defines them as vampires, and. There are mixes of elements from the fictional vampires, from folklore, um, from, I would say, even magical streams of thought, uh, looking to people who would be magical or, or sorcery sorts of adepts uh, in terms of their ability to harness power and manipulate it for their own purposes. Uh the guy that you had done the co-interview with on, um, I'm trying Father, to remember. Father Paris. Sebastian? Yeah, the, the, the guy, yeah, that was the, the interview. Now, he had an interesting uh, perspective on this, and he said that, um, like you said, how they're changing from the uh, the evil, gruesome, ghoulish idea that attacks you in the night and takes your will, mesmerizes you, and then you you relent your neck or whatever into this um, non-animal, kinder, gentler sort of vampire where they go to clubs and they absorb the excess energy. And then he actually said something about healing people while he was taking this energy from them now i'm i'm a little confused about that how do you how do you take how do you have a symbiotic relationship a with with people that you don't know um b excess energy um i know he tried to throw some stuff on there about quantum energy and they that seems to be the pervasive favorite buzzword in the paranormal these days is quantum um how many people had classes in physics, I'm not quite sure, but it's an idea that they're sort of throwing out there with the, to describe energy fields. So how is it that they can heal at the same time they're taking from people that don't know that they're donating blood to these people? Is it stealing or is it just picking something off the ground that somebody dropped? I, I think we find a lot of different practices among vampires, just uh, as, as we do among people in general. You know, there are the ethical and the non-ethical. And according to the ethical tenets that are put forward in these vampire communities, uh, who are not homogenous by any means, um, the taking of energy without permission, uh, especially to the depletion um, of another individual, is unethical. Are there people who do those sorts of things? Well, probably, just they're predatory people on on all levels of society. Um, And one of the things that that, um, Father Sebastian was addressing was transmutation of energy, that energy could be taken from other people and transmuted. Uh, Negative energy could be taken from someone and and transmuted into something more positive. Now, the 
precise process by which that is done uh, is unclear to me. Uh, there may be some uh, energy healing techniques that individuals could pick up from uh, different systems, uh, you know, um, uh, like Reiki or shamanic okay. healing, and they may adapt them to to different purposes. But I'm uh, I'm speculating here. Um, and one of the things that I, I did find interesting about what he was saying about living vampires, and uh, after, by the way, after that radio show, um, a few days later, John Zappas and I went into New York City, and we had uh, quite a nice meeting with Father Sebastian where we were able to um, pursue our conversation in quite some detail. Uh, and uh, I found it especially helpful for my own research that uh, he was making an important distinction between living vampires and psychic vampires. And uh, he has defined psychic vampires as people who are needy. They're needy of energy off other people in order just to uh, feel good and, uh, and survive. And he said living vampires are an, another kind of vampire where... Uh, they they don't have that weakness. Rather, they take energy from people because that's how they they thrive. That's how they um, they make the most of things. Um, and when you think about it, though, Tracy, you know uh, we're all kind of energy vampires in in certain ways because uh, you know we meet people and we uh, we get energy hits off people. Some people make us feel good and, and energized, and other people. Def- uh, deplete us um, in in ways we get tired being around them. Uh, we take people's ideas and inspirations and and actions, and you know these are all forms of energy that we wind up processing through ourselves uh, for our own uh, our own benefit. And it's that kind of style of vampirism that um, Father Sebastian was was addressing as. Um, that's the kind of living vampire community that that he's part of and that he's addressing his work to. Is it possible that these people, okay, when they, hmm, wow, I would have loved to be there to hear what John Zaffis had to say about this. And it was his show, as a matter of fact, that, that this was from uh, Para-X, I believe, was the, the station that it was on. Um, he... When, when Father Sebastian was talking about going to a club, I was interested in, and you're you're talking about bringing it down to like a a, a local level of every every day, you know, dealing with people. There's narcissists, and they get off on psychologically beating somebody else down to be to to build themselves back up, which is a form of uh, psychic vampirism. And there's a lot of people that say psychic and they automatically think of somebody with a crystal ball, but psychic just means psychological, you know, in in definition, really. So when you're looking at at these people that go out and they, they absorb energy, can not these people be feeling adrenaline rushes, which is created from within, or is there do they really believe that they're physically unable to create their own energy force so they have to get it from without rather than within? I mean, are are they actually getting some sort of a rush, the dopamine and, and all that from being around a lot of other people? Or is are they characterizing those natural processes into 
what they call vampirism. I mean, is there sort of a was the guy able to to uh, see the difference between one is not supernatural and one is to him everything is supernatural? I'm not quite sure how he's he's identifying natural processes, or does he think it's all like that? That there it's a particular different type of breed of people that are unable to create their own energy. Well, we're dealing with a, a lot of different definitions, uh, all of which exist in the living vampire community. And uh, yes, for the most part, people who are part of this community see themselves as different from other kinds of people because of their vampiric nature, whatever that is. And there is no homog- uh, homogeneous definition of the living vampire. There is no uniform thing that applies to them all. Uh, there are different types of vampires, different attitudes, just like there are different races of, of human beings on the planet. Um, okay. And many of them do describe getting uh, a rush, a high, off taking energy from a- another person or a large number of people. And I think most individuals can relate to that. You know, we've all felt the excitement of being in, for example, in a big crowd that's excited about something in, a, in some sort of, of pitch of interest. And we all feel the bump off that. So a, a living vampire is someone in many respects who's more aware of that process and is able to make use of it in more conscious ways than perhaps the average person. Now, I've also met and talked to vampires who describe more of a need basis. And um, uh, another prominent vampire in the the living community is Michelle Belanger. She's written about her own story in several of her books. And she describes discovering at an early age that she really needed energy from other people in order to uh, sustain her sense of health and well-being. So I think we have a variety of purposes and needs that go on in the vampire community, and, and any one vampire could be subject to, um, to more than one at any given time. Well, the darker uh, side of it, now, now Marcus knows somebody, I'm going to I want you to describe this person because I only have the file that you sent me. So, um, okay. that literally talks about because there's a sanguine vampire, which is the one that everybody goes, ooh, it's scary and dark. And I had some interviews uh, through an anthropological program with a, a subculture that's local to, to the area that I live in, Southern California. And I had to be taken, uh, there's a whole protocol. I mean, you, you know, special knocks on doors kind of thing, you know, where you don't get to just walk in and and observe these clubs. I had to go through a process of interviews with people and I had to be, you know, established trust. And I'm not going to say anybody's names or where these places are, but um, I had to go to about three different uh, uh, locales until finally the third one was, I mean, there was people, that's what they do. There's, and there were the different types, you know, you're, you're right on with that in my experience that there were energy vampires. There were, uh, I was obviously completely out of place when I went in there. (laughs) I don't, I, I think I had black shoes on. That was about it. That was anywhere near close to anything that these people were, you know, their, their, their physical appearance anyway. But there's a, they, 
did I noticed it was it was a vibe. You know, when you when you met these people and they knew automatically that I was I was uh, uh, foreign to their environment. And they did have the sanguine, and they did have particular relationships between uh, uh, established between the the ones that took the blood and the ones that were the blood uh, donors, and and they have special words that they use to describe these roles. And um, I thought it was really interesting because uh, there was a lot of curiosity and people kind of buzzing around lurkers that were staring, you know, they knew why I was there because they had already gotten a big okay that I could go in. But it, it was interesting to me, the, the, the big difference between the sanguine vampires, which are the ones that actually take the blood versus the ones that are non invasive physically, I guess I'm trying to come up with my own terminology here, but they don't take the blood. They, they just, they do it in more ethereal means. So about the sanguine vampires, that's what everybody wants to know about. So I guess that's probably our next, where Marcus knows, and I'm sure you know a lot of those people, Rosemary. <laughs> oh, I'm sort of stepping more, back from the paper. More the vampires than uh, the sangs, uh, because ah. most of the living vampire community has if they're not already any energy vampires, uh, some of them have become, as, as Father Sebastian said, he started out a blood drinker, and now he's, uh, he's energy. Uh, and it was mainly because of the health hazards of, of blood drinking that he decided it, it was a good idea to switch. And some are both. And some indulge in both. And so, some of the sayings only take small amounts, like they might prick a finger uh, or do a small razor cut every now and then. It doesn't have to be a daily thing. And others are uh, more serious blood fetishists. They they like to um, they like to do a lot of wounding and you know lick the blood or look at it and you know uh, rub it on their skins. You know they've got different ways of, of enjoying the blood. I would say the sangs probably act out a, a little more than than the uh, psi vampires uh, because uh, the the blood is is part of uh, other syndromes of uh, of dress, of behavior, of uh, club environments or, or social environments. And uh, some of the psi vampires I know, if you, if you didn't know they were psi vampires, uh, you wouldn't look at them uh, out of the ordinary. Uh, but um, uh, sometimes the, the researchers, they see the same vampires just in their, their social or club environments where they're they're, you know, doing the, the practice of, of the blood exchanges, and it does seem pretty exotic. Yeah, and the theory that that I've heard, you know, about the, the sayings and about the blood, you know, exchanges is that the, the blood, you know, is considered the, the source of life and therefore the source of uh, energy, chi, prana, whatever name you want to give it. And that's why they take it, but you can only take, what is it, uh, you know, I, is it much more than a thimble or something? A blood and your stomach starts to uh, regurgitate it. That's yeah. that's what I I never really understood about you know the blood drinking. Um, that's what I you know you mentioned the the fetish of it. I was wondering if that was part of it because I know there are some people uh, they the terminology I believe is uh, they're called swans uh, the people who voluntarily uh, donate you know to be. Mm-hmm. To be a donor, and 
I, I never understood what they got out of it. If it was if it was more of an erotic thing, or if it uh, you know there was energy chain uh, exchanges. The um, the people that that I've known that uh, are sayings, they're also psi vampires. Also, they you know it's it's a combination, and um, and I unfortunately I was never able to get all the my questions answered you know about that. But I I didn't know if you were familiar with um, you know if they're actually getting energy, if they believe they're getting the energy from the blood, or do you think it's more psychological, you know, from the people you've encountered? Um, some of them actually do believe that they absorb a life force from the blood, and you're quite right that most human beings can only imbibe very small quantities of blood because it has a natural emetic in it. Some individuals seem to have a higher tolerance, and uh, I've talked to to um, a few who say they can they, they they can drink about a half a wine glass full, which seems mm. like a That's very a large lot. quantity of mm. blood. Um, huh. So it it's more it seems to be more the excitement. Um, there is an erotic component to uh, to blood exchanges that I think is very important uh, to many of the people who engage in the practice. There's an excitement to it, and and that generates an energy. Um, in and of itself, and, and so does the sexual uh, thrill of it. But um, again, we, we come back to the, the uh, central thing that many of them say that there's something in the essence of the blood that uh, they require or want in order to, uh, to maintain their, their uh, well-being and to be energized themselves, and that's how they define their own vampirism. And this concludes the first half of our interview with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. I hope you are enjoying this as much as we are. The conclusion of our talk with Rosemary will continue on Savage Science with my lovely co-host Tracy Savage in just one hour. So you can look at this as an intermission to take a break and make some popcorn, uh, but be sure to be back here by 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time because the best is yet to come. In closing my show, I would like to thank Rosemary for granting us this interview and for Todd for helping us to orchestrate the logistics from the Jackalope Studios. And a special thanks goes out to my dear friend, Starfire Price, owner and creator of the biggest and best pagan paranormal and magical website in the world, paganspace.net. Thank you, Star, for helping me to promote this show. I would also like to remind my listeners to check out the new Vampires website that I found that uh, contains a lot of new information on vampires. You can find that at thevampiresjournal.com. This is Marcus Leader, and you have been listening to The Shaman's Brew on Jackalope 105 FM on the Jackalope Media Network. Please stay tuned for the second half of our interview with Rosemary coming up in just one hour, right here on Jackalope 105 FM. <laughs>